0: I'm John Liberto, and you're hearing the Echoes podcast from PRX. Today, I've got another extended Echoes podcast for you. We're going to hear from Moby. I've interviewed him about seven times, most recently in the spring of this year. But I want to go back to one of my earlier interviews. This one from 2011. This was the second time I spoke to Moby, and it was when his album Destroyed came out. That was the second of what I considered to be a trilogy of more organic and introspective albums that began with Wait For Me and ended with Innocence. At something of a turning point for Moby, we look back across his career. That's coming up in a moment. We have concluded our summer fundraiser, so thanks to everyone who contributed. We did not make our goal by a lot, so you will be hearing from us again or just make a donation now. You can do it at any time, of course. Just go to echoes.org and tap the support tab. That's echoes e c h o e s . o r g. I talked to Moby. In 2011, it was at his condo in New York City, where he was living at the time. You'll hear us talking a lot about his equipment and drum machine wall. All of that has gone since he moved to Los Angeles. Destroyed had just come out. It was an Echo's CD of the month, as was its predecessor, Wait For Me, and the next album, Innocence. We talked a lot about those and about his early career. Okay, let's talk about the new album, which I loved. Um, I think you saw the review. I thought it was really great. But it's funny because I had all these interpretations of some of the tunes, and it was interesting later on to find out what some of
1: them were about. For instance, The Day. Mm -hmm. Well, The Day, it's about a few things. On one hand, it's about visiting my mother in the hospital before she died. And it's also about growing up in New York and being around friends of mine who are either alcoholics or very serious drug addicts and just how hard life can be for people who are sort of in the grips of addiction and uh but i guess i was talking to someone earlier and i realized that a lot of songwriters when they write songs they write songs about very specific things you know like leonard cohen's chelsea hotel is about a very specific instance that he had with Janis joplin um neil young ohio is about kent state the songs I write tend to be either inspired by a lot of different things or just very almost more impressionistic and open.
0: When I first heard it, I thought of it as kind of a follow-up actually to a JLTF mm-hmm. from Wait For Me, which was about a friend. Right? Mm-hmm. I saw the video for it. It has pretty religious
1: connotations to it. <laughs> yeah, well, I had this idea. I was listening to the song and I thought, wouldn't it be nice to have a video where Heather Graham plays a beautiful angel who battles demons in a hospital. And then I asked my friend Evan, who's a video director, if he wanted to make that video. And he sort of scripted it a little bit differently. And Heather Graham lives near me in Los Angeles. So we were hiking one day and I said, hey, do you want to be in a video where you get to play an avenging angel and battle demons? And she said yes. So it came together really easily. And the religious aspect of it, and this might sound odd, but I'm more interested in like religious symbolism Um, and religious iconography and what it says about the human condition, not so much what it says about any specific belief system or specific denomination. Because
0: religious imagery pops up in a few tunes uh, on the album.
1: Yeah, well, I like, like when Bessie Smith sang a beautiful song to God or about God, I'm much more interested in what it says about us as humans than what it says about any specific idea of God. You know, Because, I mean, I have my own odd spiritual beliefs, but I sort of believe that in a universe that's 15 billion years old and vast beyond our imagining, that trying to identify, label, codify God is actually impossible. Or at least it's impossible for us in this human form. Maybe at some point we'll understand more. So that's why I'm a little wary of anyone who will specifically say who or what God is, because I just think as human beings, we're not capable of knowing. But you did do that for about 10 years so, right? Oh, longer than that. Yeah, I used to teach Bible study, and I was quite a serious Christian. And I realized my fundamentalism back when I was a more serious Christian said everything about me and very little about the universe in which I lived you know and because i used to be quite a militant christian and now i don't even know what i am it helps me to understand other militants you know so if i look at christian fundamentalists or islamic fundamentalists or hindu fundamentalists i sort of understand where they're coming from because basically when someone's a fundamentalist they're confronted with the vastness of the universe and it's terrifying and they're scared and they don't see their own significance in it and so rather than just look at the void and look at the vastness of the universe they try and embrace some almost like tribalistic belief system and that becomes very us and them so behind fundamentalism there's no primacy of belief it's actually just based on fear and i say that as a former fundamentalist
0: so us and them so it's kind of like being a punk rocker in the 70s
1: (laughs) well i think that fundamentalism applies to so many aspects of human behavior whether it's like punk rockers versus classic rockers whether it's dance music fans versus indie rockers whether it's christians versus muslims i mean like i'm really wary of that sort of like exclusionary tribal mentality you know because none of us know enough to be right essentially but is god still part of your spiritual belief it is but i have no idea what i'm talking about like so like The moment I open my mouth to talk about God, I'm speaking of my own subjective beliefs, and I truly would never try and convince anyone to agree with me because I have no—I don't even agree with me.
0: (laughs) Well, we're talking about your lyrics, and you know, I was thinking, listen to this album. That, and this has been the case all along, but I think really on this album, very minimal, Mm -hmm. almost like haiku or mantras. Some of them,
1: well. On one hand, I wish I was a better lyricist. You know, I listened, again, we were talking about Leonard Cohen earlier. Like, I wish I could write lyrics like that. I'm just, I don't think I'm a very good lyricist. And I had this experience, I'm sure you can relate to about 20 years ago, I was listening to an Indian raga and I was driving from New York to Connecticut. It's about a 45 minute drive. And I was listening to public radio and they were playing like a 30 minute Indian raga and it kept repeating and it kept repeating And it fascinated me that my relationship to the music changed, even though the music didn't change. And that's one of the things I love about the repetitive nature of some music and some mantras, is they don't change, but our emotional relationship to it changes. I've written a lot of music that has very repetitive lyrics because I'm fascinated by how repetition affects my psyche and ostensibly affects other people's psyches.
0: That's also kind of an Eno observation. I don't know if it's an Eno concept, but an Mm -hmm. observation that... You can have a sound and have that sound stay the same, but your perception of it will change. You will think it's changing.
1: Yeah, and I, I don't know where that comes from in our psyche, but I, I know that like one time, maybe it was like 18 years ago, I was in a nightclub and the DJ kept playing very repetitive house music. And at first I thought it was sort of irritating. And then I was dancing and he played this one song that for eight minutes did not change. And at the beginning, it was okay. Three minutes into it, I was sort of irritated that it didn't change. Seven minutes into it, I thought it was the greatest piece of music I'd ever heard, even though it hadn't changed. And so it's almost like music as a weird convoluted mirror of our psyche over time. Well, in those songs
0: then, where they are just kind of a repeated phrase, is the phrase even a phrase at that point? Is it, is it just music?
1: Well, I'm sure everyone else has had this experience where I must've been three or four years old and I found a word, like sugar. And I said that word to myself and I was like, well, what is it, it's a word. Like it's not a thing, it's a word. And I kept repeating it to myself. And the more I repeated the word, the more scared I got because I was four years old. And I realized that the word had no meaning. And the more it just became like a weird collection of sound that I guess we had all agreed upon that has a certain meaning. And I like that when Like when I listen to other languages and I have no idea what's being said and you can just hear the language for the language. I think that's one of the nice things about living in an international city is like hearing Mandarin or hearing Farsi or hearing these different languages just for the sounds and not for the meaning.
0: At least in LA you're still in an international city. Oh yeah. Okay, I just got to ask you this, because I read this interview that you did, I guess that quietest interview, where you said most of the interviews that you've done, you are either drunk or hungover. And I wonder if you were drunk or hungover when we talked two years ago.
1: I was not. Um, I think I was sort of indulging in a little hyperbole when I talked to that journalist. I mean, I did have a good 20 years of just being a really almost pathetic drunk. You know, I stopped drinking a few years ago, but... When we met before, no, I think that was one of those rare times when I was neither drunk nor hungover. <laughs> <laughs> you seem pretty, pretty lucid
0: to me. <laughs> so you wrote most of the pieces for the album for "Destroyed
1: on the Road. So what did you have with you, actually? Like, what were you in the room with? It changed. Some of the songs were just written with acoustic guitar and my voice note recorder on my phone. Um, and the great thing about that is you can record an idea and then send it to yourself so it's backed up. So I'd sort of send myself these little email or MMS voice notes so they're always backed up somewhere. Sometimes I had Pro Tools on my laptop. Sometimes I had, well, I know radio is not a visual medium, but I'm pointing to a strange chord keyboard that's also a vocoder. It all changed. But more often than not, oddly like, a lot of them were written just with acoustic guitar, which is strange because there's no acoustic guitar on the album. So I think I'd read an interview with um, Martin Gore from Depeche Mode, and he said that all of his songs start out with acoustic guitar, but they've never had acoustic guitar on one of their albums. The song Jesus. Jesus, personally, Jesus, there's an acoustic guitar on that. Oh, yeah, you're probably right. Okay, so maybe he lied. But, but, yeah, so, I mean, this album destroyed, there's some acoustic things, there's acoustic piano, there's acoustic strings, acoustic drums, and some electric guitar, but even though a lot of songs are written with acoustic guitar, there's no acoustic guitar in the album.
0: Well, I remember when we were talking two years ago, you said the next album is going to be way more electronic. Hmm. And I think when you said that, I was thinking it was going to be way more of a dance album, if you will, than than the song album that way
1: that For Me was. You kind of fell in the middle there somewhere. Yeah, well, I mean, I love so many different types of music. I mean, I love punk rock. I love ambient music and classical music and jazz and folk music, but... The music that really does affect me the most strongly is music that's more melodic and atmospheric, and I'm not too concerned about how it's created. you know, Because sometimes that can be created with a saxophone and a Hammond organ. Sometimes it can be created with an acoustic guitar. Sometimes it can be created with a synthesizer and a drum machine. But it's that ability for music to profoundly transform the space in which it's being listened to that's sort of what I'm always going for. Whether that means very, in a very passive way, like very quiet music or more aggressive music, it's when music instantly becomes a soundtrack to the environment in which it's being listened.
0: It brings up so many questions, because I was just thinking coming down here, because I came on a bus up to New York, and I was listening, listening to the album, and I was thinking, it just reminded me that my favorite listening is when I'm traveling, mm-hmm. on a bus, on a train, on a plane, on a boat, when I'm in those environments, got the headphones on, that is when I'm most zoned into
1: music, more so ever than my studio. Mm -hmm. And I completely agree. As a musician, one of the frustrating aspects of that is how loud most vehicles are. You know, like airplanes, trains are good because trains aren't that loud, but like cars, subways, airplanes, they're really noisy. And so a lot of the subtlety and the nuance in music is lost when it's listened to on a plane or a subway, unless someone has really good headphones, unless they're listening to it really loudly. But I completely agree. Like, the music I make, I really want it to be listened to in a traveling environment, but hopefully, ideally with really good headphones.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the first track did have that sense to me of, like, a train moving slow motion through some rain-swept European landscape.
1: Yeah, and that's I mean, when I was working on it, that's probably kind of what was going on, you know. That song in particular, it's called The Broken Places and it's named after one of my favorite Ernest Hemingway quotes. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. He said, life tends to break most people, but many of us are stronger in the broken places. I think it's just a really nice description of the human condition. But with a, a laptop and Pro Tools, I'm not trying to be a shill for laptops or Pro Tools, but like you can actually even write music on a tour bus. You can write music anywhere. I know a lot of musicians now will write music on airplanes and they'll do like they'll get on the plane in LA fly to London and have a remix done by the time they land in London so that's it's the future
0: (laughs) I've definitely done some of my best writing on planes I know that Usually in first class with a couple of drinks. Sorry, you can't do that anymore. (laughs) A lot of literary references on the album. Mm -hmm. The Violent Will Bear It Away. Um,
1: There's a Sylvia Plath reference. Mm -hmm. Well, the the song Victoria Lucas is named after Sylvia Plath because Victoria Lucas was her pseudonym. And then there's the Ernest Hemingway quote, The Broken Places. Theodore Rothke, the song The Right Thing, is named after one of his poems. When You are Old is a William Butler Yeats poem. Um, Lie Down in Darkness is a book by William Styron. So it's a lot of the titles come from me just being a lit nerd.
0: I remember that always being the case though in terms of it appearing in your music.
1: Well I've the person I've borrowed from the most in terms of titles is Rambeau the French symbolist poet. Whenever I was in doubt about when I couldn't find a good title, I would just go through my collected works of Rambo and try and find a title somewhere in his translations.
0: <laughs> Silver Apples.
1: Yeah, I would maintain that Silver Apples were the first electronic music group. Cause I think they started in '68 or they're 67, about '67. Like yeah, and um, as far as I know, they only made one album back then. Two albums, okay. Mm-hmm. And it's some of the still it's some of the most remarkable electronic music I've ever heard. And then, of course, some other bands came along like Suicide and DAF in Germany. And the fact that he made all his a lot of his own equipment, um, and it was for somehow that it was really well recorded, and so futuristic for the time. You know, like you go back and listen to a song like Oscillations, and it it sounds more modern than almost anything that's been made in the ensuing forty years. Can you sing that? Oscillations. Well, he just sort of says ah, oscillations uh... Solutions, Your and then it goes like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> reality. yeah.
0: Spinning magnetic yeah. <laughs> I <can't> Actually,
1: <laughs> I saw Silver Apples did a reunion tour. Well, it was not a reunion tour because it was just the one man. So I saw him him do a show, and it was, it was really charming. Like it was just one man, and he had like a CD player playing some of the drums it was at the knitting factory and the crowd just paid rapt attention because clearly it was all like electronic music nerds like me who were just like amazed that he was still alive and that he was touring. So really like, you know, like, I don't know, the same way maybe like a deadhead would feel going to see a Yorma Kalkinen show, me going to see the Silver Apples in 2006 felt the same way.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I still have that record. Nice cover that they, Spray-painted it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was very the apple. It looks modern. Uh Uh-huh. And it still holds up. All right. The album's called Destroyed,
1: and you have an explanation for why it's called that, having to do with entropy. Well, there's, there's an album and a book, and the cover of the album and the book, it's a photograph I took in LaGuardia Airport. I was walking down this long hallway, and there was a sign that said, unattended luggage will be destroyed, but it only fit one word at a time. So I stood there and kept taking pictures whenever it just said destroyed. And it's odd because a lot of my friends didn't understand the title because they thought it sounded very violent. And I don't mean it in a violent way. I do mean it in a way of like applying entropy to a sense of self. You know, when I'm home, my sense of self is sort of defined and reinforced by the things in my life. You know, my bed, my clothes, my friends, my language, my culture, my food, you know, the things that I've chosen either that I'm very familiar with or that I've chosen to have in my life. And when you go on tour or when you're away from home for a long time, all those things are removed from you. you know, so suddenly you don't have anything familiar around you. And it's that idea of when the familiar has been destroyed, what do we have left as a sense of self? Because I think a lot of times, like if you live in a town where you grew up, you can look around you and there's so many things that sort of let us know who we are. If you're in a strange hotel room in the Ukraine and you don't speak the language, you don't understand the culture, you don't understand the food, and you're by yourself, there's nothing telling you who you are. And so it's odd then trying to figure out who you are in that environment. And that's kind of what the title means to me.
0: The Low Hum. That was co-written with... Mm-hmm.
1: Emily Zuzik. Yeah, The Low Hum, it's a song about being in an apartment or being in a hotel room by yourself and the strangeness of it, but the strange comfort that you can feel in those environments. Like being in a weird hotel anywhere in the world, feeling completely isolated and sort of feeling as if you should be more disconcerted than you are. Like it should be stranger and more alienating than it really is, but you're in this hotel room and you feel an odd sense of comfort you know, this sort of like womb like hermetic comfort. So that's what's behind that song.
0: She's got a nice voice. Uh yeah. but I listen to some of her albums and and you definitely tap into a different side of her voice than she does on her own records. Well she's got this
1: very deep, almost like Marianne Faithful, circa broken English mm-hmm. quality to her voice. And that's what I what I wanted. I think some of her records are l- maybe a little more conventional in a way. They're, they're quite good. Like I I mean I really I like her music, but I like those sort of like dark, smoky vocals against a more sort of like ethereal electronic background. Right, I think she's got the,
0: in your context, it's kind of like the quintessential electronica, mm-hmm. you know, chanteuse, if you will.
1: Yeah, which is, I mean, there's that long tradition of sometimes like warm atmospheric electronics with very human, you know, sort of rough vocals. And I, I love that combination, such a perfect juxtaposition.
0: So we're talking about listening to music with landscapes and you know, being out there in the world and having it be the soundtrack and you're making it in this fairly sterile box.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is I mean, it's sort of monastic, the way that I work on music. It's, I'm here in this little room and I'm always here by myself. I mean, every now and then I'll have a singer come over, but more often than not I'm here by myself. So the atmospheric quality of the music, I guess it's um, not to sound like to new age, but it's sort of like for the landscapes in my mind, you know, so I'm working on music, sort of imagining how the music would work in a more sort of like open, expansive environment.
0: When you're doing these recordings on the road and you're doing them you know early in the morning, you say, "Are you zoned at that point in time, or you know what's
1: your state of mind at that point in time? It's like a really highly focused or it all depends because a lot of the music on the record is the product of insomnia. You know, so I'll be in a hotel room, it'll be five in the morning, I won't be able to sleep, sitting at a desk, looking out at this empty city. And on one hand, there's an element of frustration at not being able to sleep. But there's also just sort of like the enjoyment of being in this tranquil, albeit strange, alien environment. Be the Love Song, I was getting a very ambiguous read from that.
0: Be the One, excuse me. Yeah. Be the One, leak.
1: The song Be the One is probably the most aggressive song on the record. And it's about, I guess, I mean, I write a lot of songs about relationships that don't work, but usually about from the point of view of being confronted with the understanding that the relationship doesn't work, you know? I mean, because as humans, like, we're all looking for romance and connectedness and understanding, and we rarely find it. And when we do, it rarely satisfies us in the ways we're hoped to be satisfied. And so it creates so much tension, you know? It's almost like... In Sufism, for example, I know that there's a lot of idea of like focusing on the tension of longing, like like the human longing to be connected with God and accepting that we can never be connected. So it's accepting the tension and t- to an extent observing it and maybe not even celebrating it, but just accepting that that's a part of who we are. I'm not saying I'm a Sufi, but you know, that, that, that tension definitely informs a lot of the music that I write. The day, the rhythm track. And the I think even the chord structure, Cindy Tells Me. I don't know what what Cindy oh, tells me. Yeah. You know, what's funny is I remember reading an interview with George Harrison. And he was talking about the song My Sweet Lord and how he wrote it. He recorded it. He put it out. And then he got sued because it was a direct ripoff of uh, um, my, my Sweet no, Love no, by, no, no, I no, think, no. the Shirelles. Yes. But he accepted it. He was like, you know what? I listened to that song when I was growing up, of course it's gonna come through my subconscious. So, I mean, Brian Eno is one of my biggest influences. So if I directly or indirectly borrow from Brian Eno, I'm not surprised, even if I'm not aware of it.
0: I'm just reading uh, the Keith Richards autobiography. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about how Jagger frequently does that. Like they had one tune and Keith Richards was playing it for his daughters and they start singing a K.D. Lang song right over the top of it. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly this K.D. Lang song, a big one too, uh, I can't remember now, but they had to give her writing
1: credit on it. And sometimes you can get away with it. Like David Bowie told me that Heroes originally started out as him singing Waiting for the Man by The Velvet Underground. So it's the same cadence. Like he'll never get sued for it because it's different enough, but like a lot of songwriters do start off singing someone else's song and it slowly morphs into their own composition.
0: <laughs> well, you'll have to go back and listen to Cindy. Tells me, tell me about Rockets. What a powerful
1: song! Well, to me, Rockets is it's sort of like a lullaby. Um, my friend E Yang Bassi has this beautiful iconic, quintessential, like sort of gospel voice, which is ironic because she grew up playing in punk rock bands and then working at Carnegie Hall, sort of like curating experimental modern music. But her voice has such a soft, gentle quality to it in that song. I wanted everything in that song to be almost like disconcertingly gentle. You know, so like the drums are not very loud, everything's quite warm, almost like it's sort of like a, like a very gentle lullaby electronic bath. It's a really beautiful song. And
0: again, another song with a haiku, not a haiku, kind of a mantra thing, is um, after. My mind was low.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I have this little Korg keyboard over there, and it has a vocoder built into it. And so I just, one night, late at night, was just saying stuff into the vocoder, and I happened to record that loop, and I really liked it, so I sort of built the whole song based around that strange vocoder loop.
0: Is your relationship with electronics the same as it was 20 years ago?
1: Uh, well, technology has changed quite a lot. I mean, now almost anybody with a laptop and some decent software can make good-sounding electronic music, whereas 20, 30 years ago it was really difficult. You know, You had to find the equipment, you had to buy it, you had to figure out how to make it all talk to each other. And so as technology has become more sophisticated, my approach has become a lot more rudimentary. You know, like I love using... Old drum machines and old synthesizers and old microphones and all sorts of old equipment because I get a, a warmth from it. I know that's an overused word by producers and musicians, but I do get a, a warmth and a randomness from old equipment that I can't get from new technology. You know? So I like new technology very much. I'm glad it's there. I just don't use it that much anymore. Does that
0: make you, do you feel a connection with early electronic music using some of those tools?
1: I actually feel more of a connection to electronic music, let's say from 1972 to 1982, than most electronic music being made today. You know, I like new electronic music, but back then no one knew what they were doing. You know, it was really uncharted territory. So when Brian Eno invented ambient music, that hadn't really existed before him. You know, I mean, it, well, it did all sort of start with the Art of Noise, not the band, but like in the 20s with the Futurists, you know, and and then with Bob Moog. And, but yeah, from 72 to 82, people were turning on their drum machines, turning on their synthesizers with no idea what was going to happen. And there was no real frame of reference. So it was being invented while it was, you know, they're making it up while they went along. And so I find that that quality of that spontaneous inventiveness of electronic music from 72 to 82 to be really inspiring. And that was the biggest inspiration musically for this record.
0: Oh, really? Okay. Let me just run this by you. I think the music, and I think it's the same music, I think music like Tangerine Dream, Klaus Schulze, Jarre, that, that era, really kind of in a way the only original music form, pure new original music form of the second half of the 20th century, at least.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it's hard to say because there's If you're looking at a tree, like they're the roots and the roots are classical music, Irish folk music, African music, you know, and almost all music comes from one, like a hybrid of those three elements. And so, for example, sample based hip hop and sample based dance music, it was very new and very accidental, but all based on old musical forms. What was interesting about the music you were talking about more, you know, early electronic music, there was no precedent for it. You know, so you had people like Walter slash Wendy Carlos using very new technology to make very old music. And then other people using new technology to see what new things they could invent. You know, I mean, the classic example is like Giorgio Moroder producing I Feel Love for Donna Summer. You know, I mean, it's still, to quote Brian Eno, it's one of the most revolutionary pieces of music ever written, recorded, and produced. And I love how some electronic music... Basically, in its strangeness, still was compelling, you know, and didn't wasn't off-putting in its strangeness. And and now a lot of those sounds, like I remember the first time I heard a synthesizer, thinking like, "What in the world is this? What's this odd sound?" And now it's as familiar as an electric guitar or an organ or a drum set.
0: And, and you know, another thing, and I hear this in your music too, is that that music, it's the best of that music. It doesn't sound dated to me. You know, when I hear those sounds,
1: they still sound good. They still sound fresh. They sound as fresh as an orchestra, you know. When I was at university, I studied philosophy and photography. Well, I'd been doing photography long before I went to college, but my first day of studying photography in university, my photo instructor asked the class a question, and the question was, what's the difference between photography at the end of the 20th century as opposed to photography at the beginning of the 20th century? And the answer is, photography at the beginning of the 20th century technically was better. You know, the negatives were bigger, the prints were better. And the same thing is true of electronic music. Like, sonically, electronic music made in the mid-70s with all those big analog synths and the beautiful oscillators technically sounds better than electronic music being made today. You know, if you go back and listen to a Gary Newman album or a Tangerine Dream or Jean-Michel Jarre, like, the sounds are technically better than anything being produced today.
0: As a photographer what you're doing is kind of framing things Mm -hmm. most of the time.
1: Do you feel like you're doing that in your music as well? You know, it's funny, because I'm putting out the photo book and the album, so a recurring question is, what are the similarities between photography and music? I have no idea. I'm trying to think of a good answer to that question, because in many ways, they're completely, creatively, like the methodology is completely different. You know, like to take a picture, it's it's a spontaneous, instant documentation of a moment whereas music i'm crafting something over weeks and months and potentially even years tinkering and tinkering and adding vocals to something and adding drums to something and changing sounds so it's until a song is finished it can take a year and a half of sort of like a slow process and a picture the moment you take the picture it's basically done
0: but in a way, you're kind of still doing the same thing, getting back to my, my idea. I mean, like, mm-hmm. let's, let's go back to play, for instance. I mean, you were taking these found sounds, these found vocals. Mm-hmm. You were putting them in a new setting, a new frame, in a way. And you kind of still do that, except you're not using the found sound. But the way you use vocals is the same.
1: Yeah, I think it was Kandinsky and said, like, collage is the art form of the 20th century. So, I mean, almost everything is, by definition, a collage. So, when you take a picture, it's a collage. It's just a collage of stuff that other people have collected and put together. Even if you take a picture of a parking lot, it's visual aesthetic elements that someone else has put together in a certain way, and I'm just documenting it. Whereas the music I make is very collage-based, but I'm the one compiling the collage. But by documenting it, you're pointing out something that millions of people may walk by every day and not even notice. From a photographic perspective, that's sort of my ultimate goal, is to take the banal and the mundane and to see the strange and the beautiful in it. You know, empty corridors, parking lots, empty spaces. I I think there's a a strangeness to these banal environments that's also really beautiful and compelling. And also to see the strangeness in situations that people might see as like really romantic or glamorous, like standing in front of 75,000 people. The way I'm trying to document it is to almost look at it take it out of context and look at it aesthetically to sort of just observe it as this really odd moment where there's 75,000 people packed into a small space. Yeah, I was going to say, that wouldn't be one of the banal images. No, it's not, but, but there's, <laughs> there's an oddness to it that doesn't normally present itself, I think.
0: You use drum machines a lot on the sound. We talked about this a little bit last time, because I remember you were talking about you had a synsonic drum, and I, I think I still got one floating around somewhere. Is, is there a difference using those older tools those older rhythm tools, as opposed to programming drum loops in a
1: computer? Well, the great thing about drum machines, and I have such a weird love for them, because I also presumptuously believe that I have the world's largest collection of old drum machines. um, What's great about them, they don't do that much. And what they do, they don't do very well. And I love that, because technology now is so, it does everything. You know, like when you are using Ableton or Reason or these software platforms on a computer, you have a choice between a thousand snare drums and a thousand bass drums and a thousand hi-hats. And you plug in a UniVox drum machine and it does about six things. And all you can do is make it like a little faster or a little slower. Sonically, I just I, maybe it's because I grew up listening to drum machines, you know, like you listen to Oxygen or early Kraftwerk records and Sly and the Family Stone, like everybody used drum machines. And so I love the thinness of them and the weird atmospheric quality that they have. Um, and they're just, they're so humble, you know, like drum machines are, especially older drum machines, they're like, they're totally uncool and they're really humble. And they just, the moment you turn them on, you understand their limitations and you're just sort of forced to work within them.
0: You know, I always thought Tangerine Dream, that was when they started to lose it, it was when they started using Lin drums and then the more sophisticated, yeah. you know, drum so computers. Is,
1: I remember, not to keep going back to Brian Eno, but reading an interview with him once, and he was talking about the tendency of musicians to want to make things sound technically better. You know, to, like So a band records a demo in their basement, and it sounds amazing, so then they go into an outside studio and make a very professional-sounding version of that same demo, and it doesn't have any of the character. And so I've sort of forced myself as a musician over the years to try and like retain some of that demo quality you know so like to not record things perfectly and what you're saying about tangerine dream like everyone used cheap drum machines because that's all that was available and then the moment the better drum machines became available that's what they started using but it was they were too clean and they were too perfect like the older drum machines were part of the character i mean i've done that myself like recorded a demo at home had it sound really rough but compelling and then go into an outside studio, spend all this money to re-record it, and end up with something a lot more lifeless. It's now I have to sort of accept the messiness of the recording process and accept imperfect parts, because oftentimes that's where a lot of the character comes from.
0: So do you have a name for this room?
1: No, I don't. I mean, my studio. Well, now, I mean, because I have this studio, and then I have a studio in L.A. Well, the studio in L.A. is weird, because it's not... The control room isn't bigger, but then I have a bunch of other rooms around it because it's a, it's a small house. And so one bedroom is the control room. The garage is the live room. The living room has a piano and it's all sort of wired up so you can like record anywhere in the house.
0: And so what do we have over here? Just a regular
1: collection of keyboards? Up top, I think is a Juno 106 or a Jupiter 6. No, that's right, because a bunch of my old analog synths went to LA. So what I have, I have the, a Juno 106 a new Dave Smith's Prophet um and then in these closets tons of old weird equipment and then drum machines back there and then the huge wall of drum machines out in the living room and then these guys I know radio's not a visual medium but like this you know tape delay and reverb and really rudimentary analog delay and spring reverb and then um the the mother of all tape delays that I still use all the time is the the Plex. anything sonically interesting on this album went through here at some point like whenever I'm working I'm like well what should I do to try and make a drum more interesting just put it through the Echoplex.
0: Oh, I can't believe it, leave, leave it open for a second oh. well first of all I know the Plex. I've seen it on mm-hmm. stage a million times I've never actually seen one this close for some reason and I had no idea wow So why would you use that instead of, you know, obviously there's way more
1: sophisticated, you know, looping and and echo devices. Well, with the Echoplex, for example, and most of this equipment, it only does one thing. And the Echoplex, because it's based on tape, it's not a full frequency recording. So you put a signal through it, and immediately the signal is degraded, but in quite interesting ways. Like, so you lose the high end, you lose some of the low end, and this one is quite old, so the tape head is supposed to erase what's been recorded, and it never quite does. So every time it goes around, you get little artifacts from the last time it went around, sometimes even hearing artifacts from other songs that have gone through it. So like, like if you have really good headphones and you go through this album, Destroyed, you'll hear all sorts of little artifacts from other songs in places where they shouldn't be. Because I also like that if you turn on the equipment and you let it do what it's gonna do and try not to interfere too much. You know, which drives engineers crazy, because it's, it's noisy, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do, but I, I love it.
0: Can we take a walk out into the other room?
1: Yeah, sure. So how many people have come in here and said, this is sick? you know what's funny? Not that many people are impressed by the drum machine collection. Oh, you know who were really impressed was the band Au Revoir Simone. Do you know them? Like they For some reason, they were in the neighborhood. And they emailed, because we met through David Lynch, and they're like, hey, we're in your neighborhood. Can we come over? So they came over and they walked in. They were really impressed, which is ironic, as normally, not to be gender-related, but like women are not too impressed with broken old analog drum machines. And Daniel Miller, of course, from Mute Records, he was impressed. Uh, John Taylor from Duran Duran, I sent him a picture of this, and he was really excited. And Carl Hyde from Underworld is very, very jealous. But a lot of people just because it's a wall of drum machines, but people assume it's just a wall of old equipment. And then when they tell them it's all drum machines, I think they're a little freaked out. They think it's some odd obsessive compulsive thing on my part that I would have to collect all these old drum machines. And this isn't isn't the whole collection. Like there's some in storage, there's a bunch in my studio, there's a bunch in closets, I have a bunch in Los Angeles. Because my goal at some point is to have the world's largest collection of drum machines pre-1982 at some point in L.A., because real estate is cheap there, to open the world's only drum machine museum. Now, what's 82? 82 is when drum machines started to get too good. When the Linn came in? Yeah, Yeah. and I have a Linn drum back there. So some of the early digital drum machines, like the MXR and sequential circuits and Linn drum, DMX, the early digital ones are actually interesting because the technology was still very basic. It's when drum machines really started to try and sound like drummers is when I lose interest. About 1984 when they started getting a little too slick, you know? So it's it's the humble older drum machines that I really love. So are these functional? I'd say about 90% of them are. I mean, it also depends on what your criteria is for functional, you know? Like they work the way an old car works, you know, like sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it does what you want it to do, sometimes it does nothing, you know? And you just sort of turn it on, hope for the best, and try to be understanding when stuff doesn't work, because you figure they've all been through the ringer.
0: So none of these go out on tour
1: with you, I imagine. No, no, they they stay here and get used occasionally, and the rest of the time, it's, you know, this is sort of like, not necessarily being put out to pasture, but, uh, you know, they've all had long, hard lives, so this is where they come to, to rest and relax. So which one of these appears on Destroyed? Oh, lots of them. There are a whole bunch of them are on Destroyed. Because some of them, and again, I know radio is not a visual medium, but some of them have, you can just, you turn them on and they make pre-programmed drum loops, drum patterns, and then others, like the Rhythm King up there, you can actually play the sounds individually. So like the bass drum, the snare drum. So sometimes what I will do to cheat is record an individual bass, snare, hi-hat, et cetera sound, and then program it on the computer. So it's the analog drum machine, but with my own sort of, Home written patterns. And um, they all should have been. I mean, they're all more than deserving of being used. What's the oldest one here? The oldest is that one, the Wurlitzer Sideman. I think it was the first commercially produced drum machine. The holy grail of drum machines is the Chamberlain. And Chamberlain was, most of these are all, they're basically oscillators, like the same white noise oscillator going through filters to make a kick drum, snare drum, hi hat. But the Chamberlain was tape loops, like the Mellotron. So it was pre-recorded drum loops that you would then move the tape head around and uh, there are only a few in existence and I would walk backwards from here to Moscow to have my own Chamberlain drum machine like that's, I I check all the time, I'm always googling Chamberlain drum machine for sale and it just doesn't happen. (laughs)
0: Moby's latest album is Resound NYC, the follow-up to his 2021 release, Reprise, both of which revisit Moby's music with new performances. I'll have a link to those as well as to my CD of the Month reviews for Wait For Me, Destroyed, and Innocence. On the Thursday Echoes podcast, it's going to be Deborah Martin and Jill Haley talking about their ambient music collaborations, a meeting of classical and electronics. And remember, you can still make a donation to Echoes. Just go to echoes.org and hit the support tab and hit it hard. Once again, that's echoes, E-C-H-O-E-S dot org, O-R-G. I'm John DiLibretto. This has been the Echoes Podcast from PRX. See you next week, tonight on the radio, somewhere in the country, or at Echoes Online, right now or whenever you want.